Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the understanding that you have given us about salvation. Father, we pray for those who do not yet know you, that they would come to know you. We ask that you would bless the Sunday school meeting in the back. Each of the teachers would be able to communicate well to the kids, for each of the kids to listen well and to learn what you have for them this morning. Lord, we pray that you would have your will in this meeting. We would learn from you, take in what you have to say to us. We're in Hebrews chapter 6, left off kind of in the middle of things, or maybe a third of the way through, I don't know. Um, Last Sunday, we were talking about different views that people have of what this passage means. And I mentioned that there are a couple of major views. One is that that he's talking about people who are unbelievers in this passage. And other people hold that he is speaking about only about believers because only believers could meet these things once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They say that only could apply to born-again believers. And so we had talked about the possibility. Enlightened does not always in Scripture refer only to people who are believers. Tasted the heavenly gift. Again, it is possible to taste without eating, just as Jesus tasted the vinegar but did not drink. He refused to drink it. That brings us, I believe, to the next one, which is um, they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. The, The first group of people who believe that it has to be believers, they would say partakers of the Holy Spirit is speaking of having the Holy Spirit living in you. Now, some in the second group are going to say, no, partaking is, that, that word for partaking is also partners, partnering. And they say this is talking about people who have gone along with the Spirit for a certain amount of time. The, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And they say these people have gone along with the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in their lives, convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment, but they have never gone the last step and said, okay, I'm going to yield to the Spirit and I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ. Others in the second group would say that partaking of the Holy Spirit just means that they were in the church, they saw the work of the Holy Spirit, they saw the miracles that were going on back then, and so perhaps he could still be talking about unbelievers who had just been recipients of Perhaps they'd had miracles performed that benefited them. The next thing that's talked about there is they have tasted the good word of God. 
And the arguments for that are going to go the same way as the arguments for that they have um, tasted the heavenly gift. That they're going to say, okay, some people taste and they say, good, and they eat. And other people taste and say, I, I'm not, you know, they put their finger in it, touch their tongue, and say, not for me. I don't want any. So they would say that, yes, this could still apply to people who are unbelievers. Then there is tasted of the powers of the age to come. And again, this is uh, the word used for powers there. Is talking is usually used talking about miracles. Um, and so they are referring to miraculous powers, miracles themselves. Uh, both groups would probably see that the tasting of the powers of the age to come refers to having witnessed the, the miracles and heard testimonies of the miracles or perhaps had the miracles performed on them or perhaps even partaken of performing miracles. Some of those who hold that these things can be done by unbelievers would turn to Matthew chapter 7, which is where I'm going to go. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, this is Jesus talking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And they would say, okay, so there are some people who might have joined in with the church, have participated in all kinds of things, including been involved with miracles, and they still have never trusted the Lord Jesus as their own Savior. So most of the people who who hold that unbelievers can be the ones that, be, that are being talked about here um, say that this passage is describing people who joined the church, so to speak. They were meeting with the church. They were hanging out with the church. They were hanging out with believers, but they were not believers themselves. Um, are like the people in the book of John. If you go to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, talking about Jesus, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So there were people who had at least some degree of belief in Jesus that he was possibly the Messiah, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just been talking to the people who had, had been there for the feeding of the 5,000. And they would have been happy to make him king, but Jesus was not looking to be made a king over them. 
And he told them some things that were a little hard for them to swallow. You could say they had had a taste of his power, but they found some of his teaching hard to swallow. Verse 60, John 6, 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But these things, uh, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. He knew already who were the true believers and who were not. Therefore, he said to them, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So some of these, some of the interpreters would look at that and say, okay, this passage is describing some people like those ones in John chapter 2 and John chapter 6 who came and listened to Jesus and were ready to make him king even, but not on his terms, on their terms. And they were unbelievers. One commentator suggests drawing three circles. You got one circle over here with the, all the, the people who were just fully in the Jewish system, the temple sacrifices, all of that sort of thing. And they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. You got another circle over here that has all of the people who were professing believers saying, I believe, or they were hanging out in the church with the church people. Um, there are advantages to being in that group because in that group, the light is shined, so you get some teaching, you get some enlightenment, you get some understanding. The heavenly gift could be tasted there. You can, you can see and hear and know things that God is doing. The Holy Spirit was clearly at work in the church. So they had a chance to see those things happening. The good word of God was taught there. And the signs and miracles, the powers of the age to come, were seen happening in that circle. So they would have a an advantage in that they were witnessing these things. But within that group, there is a third circle of the people who actually truly believed in Christ for their personal salvation. And that guy gives examples from the Old Testament and the New Testament of people who had enlightenment and privilege but still made the wrong choices, such as Balaam the prophet. I'm going to go to Numbers chapter 22. We won't spend a long time there, but Balaam the prophet... Um, he had some degree of enlightenment. One, he knew who the Lord was. Two, he knew God's plan. Look at verse 12. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. He's got some guys who come to him and they, they said, look, 
Israel is so strong, we need you to come and curse them. Because we know that whoever you curse is cursed. And whoever you bless is blessed. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Um, So he knew who the Lord was. He knew the Lord's plan to bless Israel. And he claimed that the Lord was his God. In verse 18, I believe that is. Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Although Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. So he knows who the Lord is, and he claims the Lord as his God. He knows that the Lord's plan is to bless Israel, but he dies on the side of the enemies of God. We find that in Joshua 13. This is considerable time later. Joshua chapter 13, verse 22. The children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer, among those who were killed by them. Balaam could not curse the people of God because God wouldn't let him. Could not curse Israel. But he talked to the people who wanted them to be cursed and convinced them that the best way to get Israel in trouble was to intermingle with them, which they did, and God judged over that. Lot's wife was somebody who was privileged. She got to go along with um, with when the angels came to Sodom and told Lot and his family, you got to get out of here. We're going to destroy. God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You need to leave. You need to leave now. And it said that angel, the two angels took them by the hands and led them out. So she got to hold hands with an angel. She got out. She was privileged in that way. But her heart was still in Sodom. And she perished when Sodom perished. She was looking back at where her heart really lay, and she died. Simon the sorcerer, in Acts chapter 8, I won't read all of 9 through 26, but 9 through 26 talks about Simon the sorcerer, who a lot of people gave great respect to. They heeded him because he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Verse 11 um, Verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, in air quotes perhaps, um, and and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. But then a little bit later, he sees when the Holy Spirit comes on the people when Peter lays hands on them and he says, wow, I want some of that. How much would it cost me to, to get that power to, to give the Holy Spirit to people? And Peter said in verse 21, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this, your wickedness, 
and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound with iniquity. And the last one we're all familiar with, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot walked with Christ, lived with Christ for three years, hung out with the other disciples. Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus called the twelve to him and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Judas is there. He's part of this at the time. We know what happens to Judas. Judas was a covetous thief who stole from the group, and in the end he betrayed the Lord Jesus for money and then committed suicide. So they would see this as these are the people. Uh, this, this guy, this commentator would see this. These are the people that he's talking about here, that they had privilege, they had light, they had done miracles perhaps, and they still were not believers. Are there such people in churches today? Are there people who claim to be believers but don't truly know the Lord Jesus? There certainly are, and some of them are good enough at masquerading that we can't tell the difference. We don't recognize them, perhaps. And there are some who may actually believe that they're on their way to heaven, like these, like those people in Matthew chapter 7 who said, Lord, you know, we, we were there, we did all this stuff. But they don't truly believe the gospel of grace. I'm going to flip to 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. John talks about some people like that. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Um, For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that None of them were of us. So yes, there are people in the church, even today, who are masquerading or believe that they're Christians and aren't. Are they the people who are being described in this passage in Hebrews chapter 6? I can't say that absolutely for certain. The views of this passage that are most comfortable to me as far as trying to interpret this passage, are the ones that take into account the very Jewish-Hebrew flavor of the passage and the context, the whole book. I got to thinking about that, that when you're trying to understand this passage, you have to consider who it's written to. And is he addressing these people as the ones that are or is he talking about someone else? There, there is reason to, to think that's a possibility. There are, there are some who see the fact that he has talked about you and we. And at this point, he talks about those, them, and they. In the passage that we're looking at there in 4 to 6, those who were once enlightened, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. 
They say, okay, so he's talking about different people. There's you and we, and there's them and they, and those. But that, again, comes down to a grammatical thing that there's not actually a pronoun used there in the verses 4 to 6. It's talking, it's participles. The, um, it's impossible for the once enlightened ones and the having tasted the heavenly gift ones and the having become partakers of the Holy Spirit ones. So it's, there isn't actually a them used or they used in the Greek. You look at this book of Hebrews. It's written from a Hebrew to other Hebrews. The illustrations that are used in the book are all from Hebrew history. The warnings look back at things that went wrong in the nation of Israel. The promises are Hebrew promises. The examples that he uses of what to do are of Hebrew people who walked with the Lord. The things in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the elementary things, if you're looking at those as things that, that were involved in Jewish worship, they were things that laid a foundation and pointed forward to the coming Messiah. The fulfillment, these were Hebrew history, Hebrew typology, Hebrew prophecy, and they all point forward to the fulfillment of those illustrations and historical symbols and types and prophecies in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, lest you think that I am suggesting that perhaps this book is just for Hebrew people, it doesn't really apply to us, it's just talking to Hebrew people, let's go for a minute to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. He's talking about Jewish history, um, the Exodus. All were baptized into Moses. There's a baptism there. Uh, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, um, which perhaps they tasted on the way down. Um, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written down for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. I think that is something like what's going on with the book of Hebrews. Yes, he is talking to Hebrews. I think he is talking to Hebrew believers. He is giving them a warning, but it still applies to us. 
just like all those things that he mentioned there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, those things happened back then, but they happened as examples for us. And it was written down so that we would know about it. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. It wasn't written to us as a letter. It wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. You don't find a lot of Gentiles in the book of Hebrews. Maybe Melchizedek. We don't, we don't know what nationality he was. Some people believe it was a, just a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. Others believe that he was a, an actual literal king, but we won't get into that today. You also have Rahab. She was a Gentile, but she converted to the Hebrew religion and she converted and married into the line of the Hebrews, was actually an ancestor of Jesus. And then the other, only the other two I can think of in there would be like Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter. And they are just briefly mentioned. I think you have to look at this book from that kind of perspective. First commentary that I can remember talking about that was by a guy who suggested that the beginning verses of chapter 6 were to Jewish believers and telling them to make a decisive departure from the symbols and the types that they grew up on and make a total commitment to the Messiah who filled, fulfilled those types. And he was one of the people, the, the guy who wrote that commentary was one of the people who believed that these, these were, he was talking to people who were sitting on the fence. They had grown up Jewish, Now they've heard about Jesus and they're thinking, maybe this guy really is the Messiah, but maybe not. And they were waffling, which side of the fence do I get off on? And he was telling them, guys, you get off on the wrong side of the fence, you're not going to get another shot. I don't think that that's who he was addressing here. I think he is talking to believers. When he was talking about when, when this guy was going through those things in verses 4 to 6, and he was talking about how, how, why they could apply to unbelievers, that was one of the guys who, who showed me that, okay, you could look at it that way. When he was talking about tasting the heavenly gift, he described that as you got, they got a distinct impression of the quality of what was being offered. When they came and they met with the church, they got a distinct impression of the quality of what was being offered in Christ. And he tied that back to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea, if, if that doesn't ring a bell with you, it's Numbers, Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13, we'll look at verse 33. Whoops. Sorry, that is, there is not a Numbers 13.33. Yes, there is, but it's not the verse I need. Um, sorry, it's 23. It's talking about the spies. When the spies, the Israelite spies, went into the land of promise, they're there at the border, ready to cross over into the land of promise that God had told them, you know, brought them out of Egypt to go there. And the spies went in, And it says, they came to the valley of Eshcol, verse 23. And there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes that they carried between two of them on a pole. That's a 
That is a huge cluster of grapes. It takes two of them to carry it on a pole. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. Then in verse 26, So they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So they got a taste of what was in the promised land. They got a taste of what was in the promised land. And what happens next? They got a taste of it. They show the people what they what they had to look forward to. And then they said, but there's giants in there and we can't go. And Caleb stands up and says, wait a minute. Yes, we can. The Lord, the Lord is going with us. He's the one leading us in there. We got this. Let's go. And the people said no. And the way this commentary views this is that, okay, that's what's happening here in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, that they're waffling, they're on the fence. Are we going to go? Are we going to not go? And they've seen what they could have in Christ but they're also saying, well, you know, but, uh, you know, the, the, you know, that doesn't, it, you know, when I do something wrong, I like to be able to just go down to the temple and, and have a sacrifice and, you know, get it covered, make sure that that does it. And he was saying that what the writer of Hebrews is telling these people is, if you mess this up, you never get another shot. You make the choice. Get off on the left side of the fence. You never get another shot at getting to the right side of the fence, essentially. The biggest issue that I have with that is that he seems to believe that the scenario described there could only apply to at the time that this was written. That this was written to Jewish people who were on the fence. They had a choice between going back to the temple and offering sacrifices and a choice to go with Jesus. They couldn't have it both ways, and if they made the choice the wrong way, they're out. And he says that, that could only happen then because pretty soon after this was written, the temple was destroyed and the Jewish sacrifices have not had taken place since. So you go that route, you just lose out. It's it's done. If the scenario that he's talking about is the scenario that's being described here, then it kind of makes a second unpardonable sin. Jesus said about the unpardonable sin that it was the only sin that was unpardonable was rejecting ah, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And this would, would be making another unpardonable sin that if you if you once had close relationship to the things of Christ and you turned your back on it, that's your last shot. You don't get another shot. I think that unbelievers have an opportunity right up until their last breath. If you realize on your deathbed that, okay, I want what what he's offering, it's still available. So, although I don't agree with his interpretation, he is the one who got me to go back and look at... Why did, how did he come to the, the idea that of looking back at 
Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Guess what? The writer to Hebrews has already been to Numbers 13 and 14. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, starting in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter into my rest. Go back to Numbers chapter 13. After they had shown the fruit of the land, and possibly had a chance to taste the fruit of the land, Verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword so that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Right. You get to verse 21. Truly, oh, this is the Lord speaking. All right. Before we do that, Moses prayed for the people and said, pardon them. God, God had said to Moses, why don't I just kill them all and start a new nation just using you? And Moses said, you can't do that because... There are other nations who know that you brought them out of Egypt. And if you kill them all here, they're going to think, they're going to say, he wasn't powerful enough to take them in, so he just killed them. Glorify your name. Verse 15. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, Therefore, he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned. I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. That is what we found in chapter 3 of Hebrews. I swore in my wrath they would not enter into, they will not enter into my rest. And we are out of time again, but I have talked to Trent, and Trent is willing to yield his spot next week. I'm going to try to wrap up this passage in Hebrews chapter 6 next week.
But please, if you care to, look at Numbers chapter 13 and 14 and see if you can figure out how that might apply here in chapter 6 of Hebrews. Father, we come. Again, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would give us a good interpretation of your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to interpret it correctly and to apply it correctly. In the name of Jesus, we pray.